Okay, Genesis 50, that's what we're intending to do this morning, Genesis 50, and for more than a year now, we have been working our way through the book of Genesis, or the book of beginnings, and today at long last, we've come to the end of the beginning, the end of the beginning, and what does the end of the beginning teach us? It teaches us about the end. That is the end of life, that is death, It's almost as if the book of Genesis comes full circle for us now. You see, at the beginning of this book of beginnings, early in Genesis, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and God said to them, you shall surely die. And now at the end of this book of beginnings, we have the record of both Jacob and Joseph's death, making death the central theme of our text this morning and the primary subject of of my message. Of course, death is an uncomfortable subject to discuss. It's hardly what you were hoping to hear of this morning. I've written there at the top of your notes, death is a reality of life that we must all face. However, we can face it in faith because of the redemptive promises of God. And so from Genesis 50, I prepared a message titled The End of the beginning. Let me pause for prayer. God in heaven, we do ask that you would speak to us this morning by your spirit through your word. Lord, we acknowledge that there are distractions. Lord, there's a a hornet loose in the room. But Lord, there are other things that distract us. There are burdens that we carry in our minds and our hearts. There are fears that we have, anxieties that we have just now, and I pray that you would remove those things from us so that we might give our attention wholly to the scripture. Lord, I pray that your spirit would teach us and change us because of our study. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Your Bibles are open before you to Genesis 50, but I would like us to pick up in chapter 49, verse number 29. Chapter 49, verse 29, then he, that is Jacob, charged them and said to them, I'm to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of of, of Ephron the, the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. So Abraham bought this family cemetery plot back in Genesis chapter 23. Verse 31 now, there they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I, Jacob is speaking, I buried Leah, my first wife. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of, of Heth. So here now, Jacob is issuing a very clear instructions regarding his burial. He was to be taken back to Canaan from Egypt to be buried along with his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac, their wives, his first wife Leah. And Jacob gave a a precise identification of the ownership of the cave. He gave a precise explanation of the location of the cave so that there would be no mistake and no confusion. I might just comment that on a very practical level, it is helpful to prepare for your death. Tell your family what you want done upon your death. Give them instructions for your burial, for your memorial service, and the distribution of your your possessions. You say, well, Pastor, I don't like to talk about stuff like that. I'll, I'll do it some other time. Okay, unless you procrastinate and then you don't have the time. And so you can serve your family well. It's helpful for them to know what you want done 
upon your death. It eliminates the questions and the confusion and the controversy that most always occurs. But having said that, the teaching of this text isn't about general funeral planning. It's, it's so much more than that. Jacob's funeral planning here was a demonstration and a declaration of his faith and the redemptive promises of God. I'll repeat that again, I should have printed it for you. Jacob's funeral planning here at the end of chapter 49 is a demonstration and a declaration of his faith and the redemptive promises of God. For you, you see, Jacob's demand to be buried back in Canaan demonstrated that Jacob was relying on the promises of God. He was dying with confidence in the promise that Canaan was the place for him, the place that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and even to him, and their descendants forever. That place, that property, that real estate is for the Hebrew people. Egypt was just a place of their sojourn, a a temporary detour, if you will. So by demanding to be carried back to Canaan, to be buried in Canaan reveals that Jacob was dying with faith and the promises of God. That's number one in your notes, the promises of God. This past week, Pastor Jared and I visited an older gentleman in the hospital, and as we walked into the hospital room, we asked, how are you doing? And the first words out of his mouth were these. He said, I'm going to heaven. And his condition was grave, even terminal, but he was fixed on the redemptive promises of God so that while on his proverbial deathbed, he was holding fast to those promises. And folks, I would ask us this morning, when our end nears, what do we hold on to? What can we hold on to? Your things? No. Your legacy? No, someone else will write that. The promises of God. I'd have us disregard the chapter division here now and and continue reading the narrative is seamless right into chapter 50 verse one. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. 40 days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. Days. There's a, a curious omission here now in Moses' record of Jacob's death. At, at this point, Joseph wept over his father, verse number one. The Egyptians wept or they mourned for him in verse number three. But what of Joseph's brothers? What of Jacob's other sons? From the context, going back to chapter 49, verses one and two, we know that Joseph's brothers, Jacob's other sons, were there standing by, gathered around his father's bed, where where Jacob issued a, a prophecy about each one's future. But Moses makes no mention of the brothers' response at this point until after Jacob's burial. It isn't until verse 15 and following that we're given any sense of the other's response. We'll get to that in just a moment. But here, Jacob is embalmed in the tradition of the Egyptians, we might know it as mummification. The Greek historian Herodotus described the ancient process in detail, but it's a bit indelicate for our purposes this morning, so I'll I'll spare you the graphic and clinical explanation of of mummification. However, the the biblical text here, from, from this text, we know that it was an elaborate process. It was a protracted process conducted by physicians over the course of 40 days. And the embalming or the mummification 
was important in this case, not just because it was the tradition of the Egyptians, but because Jacob's body was not to be buried in Egypt. It was to be carried all the way back to the promised land, to Canaan. And that embalming or or mummification is important. Verse number four, now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh saying, if now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh saying, my father made me swear saying, behold I am dying. In my grave which I dug for myself on the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now therefore please let me go up and bury my father and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph had to ask permission of the Pharaoh for a a leave of absence, if you will, to, to leave the country, to bury his father in Canaan. And Joseph then promised to return to Egypt and without reservation, Pharaoh gave that permission. So a large and lengthy funeral procession began, verse number seven. So Joseph went up to bury his father and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers, his father's house, only their little ones, their flocks and their herds they left in the land of of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen and it was a very great gathering. The, the funeral procession was large, verse seven, a large entourage of Egyptian servants and dignitaries. Verse eight describes the large caravan of Joseph's extended family. Verse number nine, horses and chariots and a very great gathering. In fact, upon reaching the promised land back in Canaan, the funeral procession made an impression on the inhabitants of the land, something they had never seen before. Look at verse 10. Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father, and when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore its name was called Abel Mazraim, which is beyond the Jordan. Some have suggested here that the seven days of mourning in verse number 10 would have been primarily for the Egyptians. And then from there, Jacob's family, Joseph and the others, would have proceeded to the cave of Machpelah alone to carry out the charge that Jacob had had given him. Verse 12, so his sons did for him just as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. Verse 13 is literally a carbon copy of chapter 49, verse 30. We read just a moment ago. And I think it's included there to, to document and authenticate how they honored Jacob by fulfilling his request exactly as he detailed. Verse 14 Verse 14, and after he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father. Now, it's easy for us to read these things quickly as we've just done. It's easy for us to read these things without emotion for they occurred so long ago among people that we don't know. Um, However, if, if you've ever lost a loved one, you know that these things are never easy. Sorrow and grief can be enormous. And sorrow and grief 
can be extended. And the suffering and separation that death brings is a heavy burden to bear. And I would never want to minimize the, the weight of any funeral process, and I don't want to, to um, minimize what, is, what has just taken place as we've read it here, it wasn't easy. But for the Christian, we do not sorrow as those with no hope. We have assurance of salvation in Jesus Christ in the redemptive promises of the resurrection. And that conviction makes all the difference for the believer. In fact, every time I stand with a family uh, of a believer who has died to be buried in a cemetery there at the, the graveside, I ask a rhetorical question. And I ask rhetorically, why do we go through all of this drama? The funeral service and the funeral procession and the digging of a grave and, and meeting at the grave and, and all of these efforts to bury the body in the ground. There are certainly other ways to dispose a body. But, but then I answer my own question. We bury the body in anticipation of the resurrection of the body. Next time you're at the cemetery, at the graveside of a believer whose casket is before you, which is to be lowered into the ground and covered with dirt and perhaps adorned with a headstone, why? Why do we do, it costs a lot of money. I'll tell you why we do this. Because of assurance and the promises of God, the hope of the resurrection that we have. And I would submit to you that a Christian funeral should be a demonstration and declaration of faith in the redemptive promises of God. And sometimes we call it a celebration of life. That's what we want, a celebration of life. We don't want a funeral service or a memorial service. We want a, a celebration of life. How about this? How about a celebration of eternal life? That's the life that we are ultimately celebrating. And so as you plan for your own death and your funeral service, may it be planned as a demonstration of and a declaration of your faith in the redemptive promises of God. That's my takeaway as I read these early verses of chapter 50 as Jacob, confident in the promises of God, says, I wanna be buried back in Canaan because that's what God has promised to me and my family. Now, it's here in verse 15 that we learn why Moses only described the grief of Joseph and the Egyptians early in chapter 50. Remember that? Joseph wept over his father. The Egyptians mourned. Where were the brothers? Where were Jacob's other sons? And I would submit that while Joseph and the Egyptians experienced grief, Joseph's brothers experienced guilt. Look at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. Now think back, many years, we remember, Joseph's brothers lived in jealousy toward their brother Joseph. Joseph was favored by their father Jacob. Joseph had dreams that placed him above the rest. Joseph received a, a coat of many colors from his father. Joseph then gave a bad report to Jacob about his brothers. So the brothers took the opportunity to rid themselves of Joseph by selling him to traveling merchants and telling their father Jacob that he was dead. So years later now, the brothers are still seized by guilt 
over their treatment of Joseph. And, and even though Joseph had extended forgiveness to them and treated them with grace now for 17 years, it's been 17 years since Jacob and the family moved down to Egypt because of famine for 17 years, yet they now reasoned that when Jacob, their father, passed away, Joseph would retaliate. In fact, it appears that their guilt was even greater than their grief and their fear of Joseph's retaliation against them. Look at verse 16. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded us saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you please forgive the trespasses of your brothers and their sin for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespasses of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also wept and fell down before his face and they said, behold, we are your servants. Do you see what's happening here? Joseph's brothers are so afraid to face Joseph that they sent messengers to speak to Joseph on their behalf and they fabricated a statement. They ascribed it to their father as leverage for fair treatment from Joseph. And immediately they, they knew what was going on um, I, Joseph knew what was going on and it grieved him further when he realized what's happening here for, in verse 17 there. And then Joseph's brothers voluntarily did what many years earlier Joseph predicted they would do. They bowed down and they said, we are your servants. And if this isn't a great opportunity for Joseph to say, I told you so, I, I don't know what is. But Joseph's response was different than that. It's a great model for us. Verse 19, Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Here Joseph's response in verses 19 to 21 captures really the great themes of the Joseph narratives and we've discussed them in length over the last many, many weeks but I'll, I'll simply give it to you as this, number two, the providence of God. The providence of God. Now follow this. The promises of God point us forward. That's Roman numeral number one. The providence of God causes us to look backward. That's Roman numeral number two. We look forward in faith at the promises of God. Jacob says, the promised land, Canaan, is what God has promised. And I am yet, even on my deathbed, looking forward to the fulfillment of the promises of God. The providence of God, number two, is where you then look backward and see how that God has ordered and arranged the circumstances of your life. And so the short of it is this. Look back over the course of your life, every circumstance in your life, whether just or unjust, has been part of the providential plan of God to accomplish his purposes in bringing you to this point today. And folks, that should give us so much freedom. That should give us so much liberty. That should strengthen our faith. Even when bad things have happened to good people, God has always been in control. That is the providence of God. And the clarity and the confidence that we have in God's sovereignty and in God's providence throughout every circumstance should be a game changer for me, for us. You say, well, how so? It should empower us to be kind to people, 
even when they have wronged us. To not retaliate in anger or in vengeance, but rather to respond as Joseph did in verses 19 through 21. You meant evil for me, but God meant it for good. And because of the providence of God in my life, I can treat you kindly. I can bless you, I can grace you, I can provide for you and your little ones, is what Joseph said in verse 21. I wanna be a man like that. The promises of God looking forward, the providence of God looking back, more than 50 years then elapses between verse 21 and 22. Between verses 21 and 22, 50 years passes, and a lot can happen in 50 years. I, I can't even imagine how much can happen in 50 years because I'm not yet 50 years old, and I'm mindful of how much has happened in my own life, but Moses doesn't tell us anything that happened in those 50 years. Why not? That's a curious thing. I mean, we ha I guess we have uh, you know, just a, a little hint here later in these verses that Joseph was able to see his children and his grandchildren, okay, to the third generation here in verse 22 and 23, but why didn't Moses tell us about those 50 years? And I believe is that Moses being born along by the Spirit of God as he wrote the book of Genesis could, wanted to place the deaths of Jacob and Joseph side by side in the biblical record. And so let's read of it in verse 22. So Joseph dwelt in the land of Egypt there, he and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. Okay, so there's some information. Verse 24, and Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. What is verse 24, folks? Verse 24 is again the promises of God. It's dying in faith, trusting the promises of, of God. Verse 25, then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and shall surely carry up my bones you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. There are two similarities here as we look at Jacob's death and Joseph's death side by side. The, the first is that physically both men were embalmed in the tradition of the Egyptians, the mummification there, so that Jacob's body could be carried back to Canaan, that long journey we read of that just a moment ago. And so that Joseph's body could wait for the exodus at which time his body would be carried back to Canaan to the promised land. You can read about it in Exodus 13, verse number 19, hundreds of years after this event here. So they were both embalmed physically and then spiritually both men were emboldened they were embalmed, they were emboldened. Jo Jacob and Joseph both died with the same faith, the same hope, boldly declaring to their children and their grandchildren of the promises of God. And this would be number three, and don't put your things away, don't shut up your Bibles because we have some more to share, but number three, the power of faith in God. You say, Pastor, I think you're overstating these men's faith at their death. You're really highlighting just an incidental. Well, I would object and I would tell you to take it up with the author of Hebrews. Hebrews 11, verse 21, by faith, Jacob, 
when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. Verse 22 there, by faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. So the author to the Hebrews went to Genesis 50 to highlight the faith of Jacob and Joseph. Never mind their life story. On their deathbed here, accepting and embracing the promises of God, the providence of God, and demonstrating power of faith in God. And folks, while our faith will falter along the way, in the course of your walk, your Christian walk, I, I think it's a powerful testimony to have clarity and conviction and confidence in the promises of God at the time of our deaths. So what if I were to walk into your hospital room where you are on your proverbial deathbed? I've done this many times. I've prayed with people, I've wept with people, I've read scripture. What if I were to walk into your hospital room and ask you the, the obligatory greeting? Hey, how you doing? Well, hello, I'm on my deathbed, right? How do you think I'm doing? How you doing? Well, you know what? I'm going to heaven. That's how I'm doing. And so we conclude the book of Genesis, or we come to the end of this book of beginnings, and on the one hand, we're relieved, so we can now finally move on beyond Genesis. Have you had enough of Genesis? It's been a year and a half, right? Don't answer that, right? <laughs> oh, finally, we're done with Genesis, a new sermon series. On the other hand, this is kind of a downer. It's kind of a downer to end like this, for God's creation at the beginning of this book was good. His creation of man was very good. The earth was paradise at the beginning of the beginning. But now here at the end of the beginning, the end of the book of Genesis, it's all about death. Two coffins, one in Canaan, one in Egypt. What a miserable conclusion. But it's not. It's not the end. It's only the end of the beginning for God's revelation to us continues and returns us back to paradise. So before you there on the screen, I've copied Revelation 21. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard of a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. If we turn the page in the book of Revelation to chapter 22, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and from the Lamb. In the middle of its streets and on either side of the river was a tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They shall need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. You see, there is life after death. There is life after life, and death is not the end. This is only the end of the beginning. In fact, you still have your Bibles open to Genesis. I want you to go back with me to see something that perhaps we missed. Chapter 25, chapter 25, verse number eight. 
Chapter 25, verse number eight. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. Turn the pages to chapter 35, verse 29. Chapter 35, verse 29. Chapter 35, verse 29. So Isaac breathed his last and died. So Abraham died in 25, verse 8. Isaac now in chapter 35, verse 29. So Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days. Now turn ahead to chapter 49. Chapter 49, verse number 29. It should be familiar now this morning. Chapter 49, verse 29. Then he, Jacob, charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Look at verse 33. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Did you hear the common repeated phrase, gathered to his people? It's not a mere euphemism for death. It is a statement of the hope of life after death. And how we view death makes all the difference in this life. If death is the end, there's no reason to seek heaven. There's no reason to shun hell. If death is the end, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we all die. But if, or since, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. That is the hope of the Christian. If you are a born-again believer, if you've called on the name of the Lord in faith, trusting in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins, you have everlasting life. And I declare that based on the authority of Scripture, so that death is really just the end of the beginning. It's not the end. But we've reached now the end of the, the book of Genesis. And the subject is the end of two men's lives here on this earth, Jacob and Joseph. However, Hebrews 11 tells us this, that these men, they all died in faith. I've told you perhaps a number of occasions that on my parents' headstone, um, my sister and I placed the words, they lived by faith, they died in faith borrowed from Hebrews chapter 11. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. A lot of that time spent in Egypt, in fact, for those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. I trust that's your testimony this morning. If you are not prepared for your death, I would implore you to call on the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. I'd be happy to talk with you about that so you can have that assurance so that all of us can declare that our only hope in life or death is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for the record of these Hebrew patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and even Joseph, Lord. Thank you for how they demonstrated faith in life and in death. I pray that this would be instructive to us. Lord, may we, with celebration and conviction, declare our only hope is in Christ alone. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.